0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 8, 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 5. Well, last week in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we witnessed the chosen moment that the Lord moved upon young Samuel... And commenced his preparation as a prophet for God. Now as Samuel matured and began prophesying, soon all Israel, from the north to the south, all 12 tribes became aware of Samuel's accuracy and enlightenment. And so he gained a reputation as being God's prophet for all of Israel. Now this was a new phenomenon. Not since the time of Moses had one man been recognized as a central authority for the word of God. Rather, during the era of the judges, that is coming to a close, by the way, with the book of Samuel, a prophet was usually only for a single tribe, and there was no centralized national authority except maybe for the priesthood. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 4 from beginning to end. Open your complete Jewish Bibles, if you have one, to page 302. 1 Samuel chapter 4. So the word of Shmuel came to all Israel. Israel went out to fight against the the Philistines, setting up camp at Aban-Azer, while the Philistines camped at Afeph. The Philistines drew up in battle formation against Israel and the battle was fierce. And Israel was beaten by the Philistines. They killed about 4,000 soldiers on the battlefield. And when the army had returned to camp, the leaders of Israel asked, Why has Adonai defeated us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the ark for the covenant of Adonai from Shiloh to us so that he will come among us and save us from our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark for the Covenant of Adonai Saphoth, who was present above the Cherubim, the cherubim. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Pinchas, were there with the Ark for the Covenant of God. And when the Ark for the Covenant of Adonai entered the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout that resounded through the land. And on hearing the shout, the Philistines asked, what does this great shout in the Hebrew camp mean? Then they realized that the ark of God had arrived in the camp and the Philistines became afraid and they said, God has entered the camp. We're lost. There was no such thing yesterday or the day before. We're lost. Who will rescue us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods that completely overthrew the Egyptians in the desert. Be strong. Behave like men, you Philistines, so that you won't become slaves to the Hebrews as they've been to you. Behave like men. Fight. Fight. The Philistines fought. Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent. It was a terrible slaughter. Thirty thousand of Israel's foot soldiers fell. Moreover, the Ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Pincus, died. And one of the soldiers, a man from Benjamin, ran and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and earth on his head. And as he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching because he was trembling with anxiety over the ark of God. And when the man entered the city and told him the news, the whole city began crying out. And on hearing the cries, Eli asked, What does this uproar mean? So the man hurried and came to Eli and told him. Eli was 98 years old and his gaze was fixed because he was blind. And the man said to Eli, I'm the soldier that came. I escaped today from the battlefield. He asked, How did things go, my son? And the one who had come with the news answered, Israel fled before the Philistines. There was a terrible slaughter among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Pincus, also were dead. The Ark of God was captured. And as soon as he mentioned what had happened to the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off of his seat next to the gate and he broke his neck and he died. For he was an old man, he was heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. His daughter-in-law, Pincus' wife, was pregnant in near delivery time, and when she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she went into abnormal labor, bent over, and gave birth. And as she was dying, the women standing by her said to her, Don't be afraid, because you've given birth to a son. But she didn't answer, didn't show any sign of recognition. She named the child Ichavod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured because of her father-in-law and husband. She said, the glory of Israel has gone into exile because the ark of God has been captured. Let me sum up what we just read here before we get into the details. First, we witnessed the Philistines capture the ark of the covenant from Israel. Second is that we see the end of Eli and his two sons running the priesthood at Shiloh. And the bottom line is that these two events are intertwined and related. And they indicate the same thing. God has pulled his glory away from Israel and he's pulled his authority from the dysfunctional Levite priesthood that had been presiding over Israel for quite some time. Put it another way. The Lord has drawn away from both the twelve secular tribes and that single priestly tribe that together represented every element of Israel. The story begins with this Statement that connects chapter 4 back to chapter 3 that the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. A transition is underway. Just as Jehovah raised up Joshua well before Moses died, so that Joshua would become familiar and trusted and prepared for what was coming once Moses was gone, so Samuel is being introduced to the people. That's giving the people time to to learn to trust Samuel and for Samuel to gain some spiritual maturity and and some experience for, for what lay ahead. But in the same verse, we're also told that Israel went out to fight the Philistines. Now, it's all but universally taught that it must be that Israel had been prompted to go to battle against the Philistines at Samuel's urging. That Samuel prophesied to Israel that the tribes of Israel should once again take up the holy war for Canaan and oust those dreaded Philistines from the promised land. But that's not only not actually implied, it also doesn't even fit the theme or the purpose or the context of this story of Israel losing its precious Ark of the Covenant to their archenemy. This decidedly was not Samuel's doing that Israel went out to fight the Philistines. Now, although the general area of the battle is known, no one is exactly certain um, of the of the location, as we would find it in modern day Israel of Eben Ezer. However, there is fairly substantial evidence for the location of Afek. Now. Um, These two places were about 20 miles west of Shiloh. It was a lowlands region that lay at the foot of the hill country of of Ephraim. Um, And what's important to understand from a geopolitical point of view is that this area where the battle took place was inside Israelite territory. It was not part of of Philistia so the fact that the Philistines had a substantial military presence there makes it clear that they also had gained much control over the southern and central tribal lands of Israel and they had full intent to lord over if not outright conquer and assimilate the people there now as a reminder the Philistines were a seafaring people who originated from the area of the Aegean Sea. And uh, they were known in Egypt, caused them a lot of trouble. And their designation as the Sea Peoples was actually written into Egyptian records at the temple of Ramesses III in Thebes, which is modern day Luxor, all right, around 1200 B.C. They settled all up and down the, the Mediterranean coast from, from Egypt uh, all the way up to Canaan and even a little further. All right? And they represented a very serious threat to all the indigenous tribes and nations of the, uh, of the coastal regions. Um, and it's obvious from their location in Israelite territory that they intended to expand their power to the east and the north, although they weren't ever very successful at it. Now, the Philistines were a nation of warriors, as opposed to Israel that was a nation of farmers and herdsmen. Now, sometimes <clears throat> what I just said is, it, it is taken to mean that the Philistines were warlike in their character, and the Israelites were peace-loving, but that's not the point. Okay. it's that the Philistines like many other nations at that time had a fully formed government and so, uh, so also had a, a standing army okay. they, they had a paid uniformed military that employed full time professional soldiers that were armed and funded by the leadership just as most nations do in our time Israel on the other hand did not have a national government, so they didn't have a national army. Okay? They did when they first entered Canaan, over 300 years earlier, under Joshua. Right? But it had disbanded in only a few years after their initial victories were won and sufficient control over Canaan had been achieved such that 12 tribes of Israel could move in and settle. Now Israel was just a militia of citizens that was that actually armed themselves. And they came together when they were needed and when they were called. So, it was Israel's militia of civilians who went against Philistia's well-trained, experienced, and professional soldiers in this battlefield between uh, Afek and uh, Ebenezer. And the result was that Israel was routed, and they lost several thousand men. Now, after a day of fighting and defeat, the Zikne Yisrael, the old men, the, the elders of Israel, gathered together and wondered why Yehovah had defeated Israel on the battlefield. See, the, these Zikne Yisrael weren't military leaders, but rather they were the people's representatives of the, from the various tribes. And they were entrusted with important decisions for the community at large. Okay. And it was these elders who decided it would be a good idea to go and get the Ark of the Covenant from its resting place in Shiloh and bring it to this battleground. Now it's quite interesting that the mindset of the elders was that Jehovah himself defeated Israel, not so much the Philistines it was neither chance nor the Philistines might but rather that the Lord was displeased for some reason and was thus directly responsible for Israel's great loss that day apparently they had not sought the Lord's counsel before they were going into battle and so now after the fact they thought it might be a good idea to consult and involve him Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? All right? I mean, how often we strike out on our own, certain our ideas are very well conceived, rational, must be in harmony with God's will, only to run into a block wall. And only afterward do we then take the time to commune with the Father and seek his guidance and his decision and then actually follow it. So they sent for the ark. And it was delivered to the battlefield, along with the priests, Hophni and Pincus. Now, under normal circumstances, Eli would have accompanied the Ark. But he was aged and feeble and, and blind. So his sons went in his stead. Now, naturally, as it says in verse 6, when the Ark arrived, there was this tumultuous shout. As the Israelite fighters were overjoyed for its presence with them. As they were certain this now meant victory. Actually, what the passage says in Hebrew is that the Israelites gave a teruah, alright, when they saw the ark. Teruah is a certain kind of blast that comes from a shofar. So we can kind of envision the blowing of. Sc- Scores of shofars accompanying the cheers of the men in celebration at the sight of the ark. But what, a, what was it exactly that they expected from the arrival of the ark to the battlefield? Well, the concept was that the presence of the ark assumed the presence of Yehovah. In fact, the ark, to their minds, was the visible sign of his presence. Now, I've taught on numerous occasions that what the Israelites pictured in their minds about how Jehovah operated was was actually very much like the other societies of that age also pictured how their gods behaved. It, It was usual for a nation to bring some of their gods to the battle location and turn the whole bloody affair into a battle of the gods as much as a battle of the soldiers. Thus the victor would assume that their gods were greater than the gods of the losers. The Israelites felt that the presence of the Ark of the Covenant would without doubt grant them victory. And at first blush, Philistines felt the same way. Because When they heard the shouts of the Hebrews and the din of those shofars rising up into the heavens, Philistines grew worried and figured it was all over for them. They knew that the cries of joy from the Israelites could mean but one thing. The God of Israel had shown up. Now as we read of the recorded thoughts of the Philistine soldiers in these passages we notice something interesting. They kept referring to the gods, plural, of Israel. The same gods, plural, who wreaked havoc upon Egypt on behalf of these Hebrews. Here's a little tip for those who like to study a bit of Hebrew when looking at these Old Testament passages. The word that is being translated as gods is... Elohim. Now most of the time this is not translated as a plural, but singular when it's referring to the God of Israel. So how do we know to translate it in this passage as gods and not God, one God? Context. Context. When a common foreigner, like these Philistines, is speaking about the Hebrew deity and the term Elohim, ...is used, it is to be thought of in the common way of speaking among those pagans... ...and therefore indicates multiple gods. On the other hand, when a Hebrew is speaking about the God of the Hebrews... ...and others the word Elohim... ...then it's in the grammatical form called the plural of majesty. And it simply means God. One God. Now, as I was reading this passage a question jumped to the forefront of my mind. Why would the Philistines refer to the Israelites' deity as gods, plural? Why would the Philistines assume that Israel had more than one god? The obvious answer is that they thought everybody had multiple gods, and so naturally Israel also had a number of gods they could call upon. But the Philistines had been rubbing shoulders with the Hebrews now for decades. Probably at least a century by the time of Samuel. Why, after all this contact between Israel and the Philistines, wasn't it common knowledge for the Philistines that, unlike any other existing society or nation, Israel only acknowledged one God? even if the Philistines didn't know the particulars or found such a thing as having only one God to be a laughable proposition. They were certainly aware of what happened down in Egypt, weren't they? And there had been intermarriage between the Philistines and the Hebrews, even though Israel's leadership discouraged it. So there was ample opportunity for the Philistines to hear about Jehovah. The sad answer is, that Israel was so dysfunctional and casual in their worship of Yahweh that it made no impression on their neighbors. Instead of Israel influencing the Canaanites and the Philistines, Israel began to look a lot like the Canaanites and the Philistines. Instead of the Philistines fully understanding that the Israelites recognized but one unique and all-powerful God, they saw nothing special or terribly different about how Israel went about their religion. They looked pretty much like everybody else. We've been constantly reading in the Torah, and now the books following it, of the people of Israel erecting shrines to various gods and goddesses, building astros all right, on high places, even adopting pagan worship practices and then mixing it all in with the worship of Yahweh. Idolatry was running rampant, not just throughout the common folk of the twelve Israelite tribes, but also even their leadership and the Levite priesthood. And even if the Levite priesthood wasn't necessarily directly worshiping other known deities, they were abandoning God's laws and commands in favor of rituals and practices that they had invented and preferred. And most of these were borrowed from their Canaanite neighbors. See, here's another of those Old Testament happenings where we modern ...believers tend to be a little arrogant. And we shake our heads in disgust at these awful Hebrews... ...while being utterly blind to the similarity between that... ...and many of our own practices today within the modern church. Naturally, I'm generalizing. So in no way am I issuing some all-encompassing indictment. Okay? But as you surf the internet... Or drive down the streets of our community, we'll find gay churches, churches that do not acknowledge the deity of Christ, churches that scoff at the virgin birth or even the possibility of resurrection, churches that preach that the be-all, end-all for our existence is for God to make us wealthy, And denominations who say that any kind of faith in any God is good, respectable, and valid. If a non-believer didn't see us pull up into the parking lot of a church building, oftentimes they'd have no idea we were any different than they are. And that's because they've influenced us a lot more than we've influenced them. We sure don't read about any Philistines worshiping Jehovah, or converting to become Hebrews, or even knowing much about the Hebrew religious system. But we see plenty of Hebrews adopting the Philistine religious system, marrying into the Philistines, and at the least being quite familiar and intrigued. With the Philistine gods. Not much new under the sun, is there? But the Philistines were not ones to let fear overtake them. They were experienced warriors. So they encouraged one another to fight like men. Even if those gods of the Hebrews seemed invincible. And as a result, the slaughter this time was even worse than the first one. This time, 30,000 Israelite men died on the battlefield. In verse 10, speaking of the Hebrew, says, Every man fled to his tent. Now that phrase is repeated a number of times in Scripture because it was a rather common saying. The idea was that not only did the fighters retreat and run for their lives and return home, but also that they laid down their weapons and gave up being soldiers. every man fled to his tent is the epitome of complete demoralizing defeat whereby the soldier actually quits the military but verse 11 tells us the real focal point of this chapter it says moreover the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli Hophni and Pincus died the deaths of Holtney and Pincus on the same day was the sign that the Lord, through his unnamed prophet, had told Eli to expect. It was an unmistakable sign that the demise of the house and priestly line of Eli that was to be expected at some unknown time had finally arrived. But at the same moment that the irreplaceable Ark of God was also captured, and together with the deaths of those two high-ranking priests who had accompanied the Ark to the battle site, it also became de facto proof to everybody present that Jehovah had finally had enough of this degenerate people and his unfaithful priesthood. God had withdrawn from Israel, lock, stock, and barrel. The leadership of Israel were so apostate that they actually thought they could compel God to fight a fight that they wanted fought. A fight in the manner, place, and time of their choosing. All this simply because they transported that gold-overlaid wooden chest to their camp at the battlefield, many a wonderful theologian has noticed this attitude and commented on this particular passage of scripture. But few, I think, as wonderfully and eloquently put, as, a, as an anonymous contributor, a contributor to the Burlberger uh, Bible. Try saying that fast three times. All right, which was a German translation written in the early 1700s. Listen to this quote. It is just the same now when we take merely a historical Christ outside of us as our Redeemer. He must prove His help chiefly internally by His Holy Spirit to redeem us out of the hand of the Philistines. Though externally, He must not be thrown into the shade as accomplishing our justification. If we had not Christ, we could never stand. For there is no help in heaven and on earth besides Him. But if we have Him in no other way than merely without, outside of us, under us, if we only preach about Him, teach about Him, hear, talk, discuss, dispute about Him, take His name into our mouth, but we will not let Him work and show His power in us, He will be of no more help to us than that ark helped the Israelites. That is a good statement. You see, Torah class, if one takes the Holy Spirit out of the Messiah... Then he's no more than a mere human. If one takes the Holy Spirit out of the Ark of the Covenant, then it's no more than just a fancy and expensive box. A cross is not Christ, and the Ark is not God. And until God's people can apprehend this, then we're going to be without the power He seeks to lend us to do His will on earth. Verse 12 explains that a soldier who escaped the slaughter ran to Shiloh to tell the high priest what's happened. And it's now obvious that it was from Shiloh that the order came to proceed in battle against the Philistines in the first place. And breathless, after fleeing for 20 miles, this man arrives at the site of the sanctuary with his garment intentionally rent, dirt thrown over his head and a customary sign of calamity and death. And as the people of Shiloh, presumably Levites, sees him coming, their hearts sink along with their stomachs. And as he gave them the terrible news, they wailed in anguish and fear. And Eli was sitting in a chair outside the entrance to the tabernacle area. And he was blind, but he wasn't deaf. And he could hear all this ruckus and these shrieks of horror. And he began to tremble, knowing that his worst fears were realized. And the 98-year-old Eli was told of the slaughter of thousands of Israelites and the death of his two sons. But it wasn't until that man told him of the capture of the Ark of God by the Philistines that Eli fell over backwards from his chair, broke his neck, and died. Eli had judged Israel for 40 years. But the reaction doesn't end there. When Pincus' wife heard that her husband was killed, at Eben Ezer her father-in-law had just collapsed and died and the ark of God was no longer in Israelite hands she immediately went into labor and gave birth but the labor was abnormal and as she lay dying the women who were attending her informed her that she shouldn't die in anxiety the child she bore was alive and well and it was a cherished son her last words were the naming of the child she'd never get to nurse or hold or see grow into manhood. And as was customary for that era, a child was often named for some momentous happening on the day of its birth. Unfortunately for this child and mother, that momentous happening couldn't have been more negative. And so the child would wear that terrible day like a mourning garment all of his life because she named him I-Kavod. he kavod means where is the glory? The glory or Kavod in Hebrew is referring to Yehovah. It was His glory that would appear above the winged cherubim on the ark. It was his glory in the 10th sanctuary that gave that place its value and its meaning and its holiness. With the loss of the ark, the resting place for the glory, the glory was gone. I think we can skip over this event too fast. And not realize the enormity of what losing the presence of the ark meant to the people of Israel. And why Eli and his daughter-in-law both died virtually from the overwhelming shock of learning about it. For the people of Israel it meant that God was gone. And if God was gone, then the guarantor of the covenants was gone. And if the guarantor of the covenants was gone, then the covenants weren't valid anymore. And if the covenants weren't valid anymore, then all rights to their land inheritance of Canaan ceased. Calamity just isn't a big enough word. The closest thing I can use as a parallel to this is to be thrown into the lake of fire. In fact, in Jewish history, this event of the loss of the Ark of God to the Philistines is thought of as on par with the destruction of Jerusalem and their exile to Babylon. Every element of Hebrew society was either affected or abolished. But let's notice what I alluded to at the start. God has taken drastic action to change the course of redemptive history in Israel. All in the same day, the people of Israel were punished for centuries of ever-increasing lawlessness and apostasy by their losing 30,000 of their men in battle. The priesthood was emptied out. And those in charge, from the high priest down to the next two most senior priests, Hophni and Pincus, were dead. The power behind the priesthood, the glory of God, and the ark, the sign of God's glory, were entirely removed from Israel's possession. The tabernacle no longer had purpose or meaning because the one who used to dwell there the one who gave it purpose and meaning has abandoned it. And the place of the empty tabernacle, Shiloh, was now just another cult site. Not much different than any other religious site used by pagans. Thus, Shiloh ceased to have any religious meaning for the Hebrews as of this time. Let's continue reading this story in chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5 Open your Bibles back up The Philistines had captured the ark of God and brought it from Abinazer to Ashdod Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the temple of Dagon and set it next to Dagon And early the next morning when the people of Ashdod got up there was Dagon fallen down on his face to the ground before the ark of Adonai They took Dagon and set him In his place again, but early the following morning when they got up, Dagon was again fallen down with his face to the ground before the Ark of Adonai. But this time, the head of Dagon and both of his hands lay there severed on the threshold. All that was left of Dagon was his torso. This is why to this day, the priests of Dagon and those entering his temple never walk on the threshold of Dagon and Hashtoth. Now Adonai began oppressing the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them, striking Ashdod and its surrounding area with tumors. And when the people of Ashdod came to understand what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel can't remain with us because he's oppressing us and our God, Dagon. And they summoned all the leaders of the Philistines and asked, what are we going to do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, well, have the ark of God carried to Gath. So they carried the ark of God of Israel to Gath. And after it arrived there, Adonai oppressed that city, causing terrible panic. He struck the people of the city, great and small alike. Tumors broke out on them. Next, they sent the Ark of God to Akron. But when the Ark of God arrived in Akron, the Ekronim shouted, Well, now they brought the Ark of God of Israel to us, to kill us, our people. So they summoned all the, Israel, all the leaders of the Philistines and said, Send the Ark of God of Israel away! Let it go back to its own place so that it won't kill us and our people because death and panic pervaded the whole city. God's oppression was very heavy there. The people who didn't die were struck with tumors and the city's cries for help reached the skies. The Philistines logically had transported the Ark of God to the place of their chief deity the temple of Dagon in Ashdod. Now, the modern city of Ashdod is very near this ancient place, but it's not really built upon the old city's ruins. And I think most of you know that Rabbi Baruch lives in Ashdod today. Now, scholars speak of a pentapolis when it comes to this arrangement of uh, Philistia, which I have circled here on the map. All right. The cities of that pentapolis were Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, Ekron, and uh, Gaza. Now it certainly appeared to the Philistines and Israelites alike that a sudden geopolitical power shift has just occurred as a result of the battle at Ebenezer. And the evidence of it was that the Philistines had captured the Ark of God from Israel. And therefore, the Israelite God and the Israelites were now under the control of Philistia in every sense. They did what most any Middle Eastern society would have done. They brought the Ark of the Covenant as a gift to their own victorious God. And placing the Ark before the statue of Dagon was, just a, was symbolic of dominance. The Ark would be Dagon's footstool. However, what neither Israel nor Philistia counted on was that Jehovah is God over history. Not just Israel's history, but all history. Jehovah has no territorial boundaries. He has no peer, as the Philistines were about to discover. The Philistines placed the Ark in front of Dagon in a position of submission. But when the priests of Dagon entered the temple the next day, it was the idol of Dagon that was lying prostrate before the Ark. Figuring this was some kind of strange coincidence, they propped the idol back up, only to return and find it a second time. It was not only face down before the Ark of God, but the head and the hands were broken off. The body, as it fell across, fell across the temple threshold. Then we're informed as a side note, that this is the reason that at the time of the writing of this section of 1 Samuel, the Philistine priests had developed this strange custom of stepping, or perhaps even jumping, over the doorway the threshold into the temple of Dagon. Now understand, the threshold into the temple of a god was the place where the common ended and the holy began. When a worshipper stepped over that threshold upon entering a god's temple, one sphere of reality was left for another. The world of men was outside while the world of the gods was inside. This was serious business. But humiliating the Dagon idol was just the beginning. What we're about to see is a whole series of plagues upon the chief cities of the Philistines wrought by Jehovah, and these plagues are eerily reminiscent of what happened in Egypt. What we also see is that it was the Lord God of Israel who first used a, used a tactic that would later be made infamous by the Greeks at a place called Troy. Jehovah used the Ark as a sort of Trojan horse. The Philistines thought that they had defeated Israel and humiliated the God of Israel. And so they cheerfully brought that ark inside their territory and even into the temple of their god, Dagon. But the god of Israel merely used their arrogance as a means to wreak havoc upon them. The people of Ashdod suddenly broke out in tumors and quickly came to the conclusion that it was the ark of God that was the source of the problem. They called a meeting of their leaders where they decided the best course of action was to take it someplace else. But they weren't about to send it back to Israel. So they transported it to another of their pentapolis. Gath. No sooner had the ark arrived than a panic set in Gath because the people there broke out in tumors as well. What were these tumors? Well... If you compare various Bible translations, you'll find various solutions to what they were. In Hebrew, the word is Ophalim, which can be translated as swellings. Ophalim is from the root word Ophel, that can mean mound or hill. In fact, the old city of Jerusalem, the city of David, was built up a steep hill hillside starting from the bottom of a deep ravine the highest point of that hill was a place called Mount Moriah and there the temple was built but the area in between the city of David and the temple mount was called the Ophel or mound so these tumors were some kind of swellings Or mounds on the body. However, over time, the use of that word began to change. This is common language. And in time it referred to a part of the body that was considered a swollen mound. The buttocks. They didn't want to use the formal word for buttocks. That sounded a little crude to them. So instead they began to refer it as a person's Ophel. Okay, from this inference, follow me, from that inference, from this folk tradition, some scholars have decided that the swelling, the tumor, was essentially a painful swelling of the swelling. It was hemorrhoids. (laughs) In matter of fact, you will find that exact translation in many of your Bibles. Now, I don't think it's correct, but I think it is comical. <laughs> the people of Gath then sent that ark onto the unsuspecting folks at their neighbor Philistine city of Ekron. And when the people of Ekron saw it coming, they went ballistic. All right? And they told their Philistine leaders they didn't want that thing in their house. All right, and then to go on and suffer the oppression of tumors that other Philistine city dwellers had endured. Well, the Philistines were running out of places to send it. And so the game of hot potato had to come to an end. All right, the Philistines relented and decided it was just going to be better to return that darn thing All right, to Israel than to tempt the God of Israel any further. So next week... We'll begin chapter 6 and watch the Philistines gladly send that ark back to its original owners.